Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. Here is an orientation to today's episode topic. Sleep health plays a critical role in proper biopsychosocial development and can principally impact a child and adolescent's physical, psychological, cognitive, social, and academic functioning. Sleep duration is a key component of sleep health. Based on guidelines provided by the National Sleep Foundation, preschoolers, defined as 3- to 5-year-olds, should aim for 10-13 to hours of sleep per night. This guideline changes to 9-11 to hours of sleep per night for school-aged individuals, defined as 6-13 to years old, and 8-10 to hours of sleep for teenagers, defined as 14-17 to years old. Concerningly, 30 to upwards of 60% of children and adolescents regularly achieve insufficient sleep duration based on the National Sleep Foundation guidelines. The alarming scope of insufficient sleep duration among children and adolescents is a major public health issue. As such, policies and programs focus on addressing insufficient sleep duration among children and adolescents are of utmost priority. Internal endogenous factors such as biological changes related to puberty and external exogenous factors such as the prominence and attraction of electronic media and social pressures contribute to the problem. Over the recent decade, school start times have garnered a sizable amount of attention as a potential modifiable exogenous factor that negatively influences the sleep health of children and adolescents as it forces children and adolescents to operate on a sleep-wake schedule that is misaligned with their internal circadian rhythm. In 2014, the American Academy of Pediatrics provided a policy statement advocating for school districts to delay the start times of middle and high schools in order to help improve child and adolescent sleep health. The statement recommends that middle and high schools should aim for a start time no earlier than 8.30 a.m., which is a delay of an hour or more in some cases from existing approaches. A wealth of research has emerged over the recent years further substantiating the benefit of delaying school start times on child and adolescent sleep health. Recently, California became the first state to pass a law mandating that the school day starts no earlier than 8 a.m. for middle schoolers and 8.30 a.m. for high schoolers. Yet, the transition to later school start times has not been universally adopted, despite the theoretical rationale and empirical evidence. Unfortunately, later school start times are the exception rather than the rule. The topic of school start times and sleep health among children and adolescents is the focus of today's episode as we unpack Dr. Lisa Meltzer's recent publication in the journal Sleep entitled Changing School Start Times Impact on Sleep in Primary and Secondary School Students. Yet today is a bit of a unique episode as we will be discussing two of Dr. Meltzer's articles. In addition to this first article, we will also be reviewing another recent publication by Dr. Meltzer in the journal Sleep entitled 
COVID-19 instructional approaches, in-person, online, hybrid, school start times, and sleep in over 5,000 U.S. adolescents, which leveraged the adaptations made in instructional approaches during the COVID-19 pandemic to assess the impact of differential instructional approaches on adolescent sleep behavior and characteristics. Before diving into our interview with Dr. Lisa Meltzer, unpacking these two articles, here is a brief background on Dr. Meltzer. Lisa Meltzer is a professor of pediatrics at National Jewish Health and a professor of family medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She is also the owner of Nixios Consulting in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Meltzer received her PhD in clinical health psychology from the University of Florida and completed her clinical internship and postdoctoral fellowship in pediatric psychology and sleep research at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She is a licensed clinical psychologist who is certified in behavioral sleep medicine by the American Board of Sleep Medicine and is a diplomat of the Board of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. Dr. Meltzer is the co-author of Pediatric Sleep Proms, A Clinician's Guide to Behavioral Interventions, and for more than 20 years, she has provided clinical treatment and education for sleep proms in children six months through college age. Dr. Meltzer's funded program of research has examined sleep across development, the impact of pediatric chronic illnesses on sleep in children and adolescents and their parents, objective and subjective measures of pediatric sleep, the impact of changing school start times on health outcomes, and socioecological factors that contribute to sleep health disparities in toddlers and school-aged children. So without further ado, here is our guest interview with Dr. Lisa Meltzer. I hope you enjoy. And now for the interview portion of today's episode with guest Dr. Lisa Meltzer. Dr. Meltzer, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss your research. How are you doing today? Today I'm doing all right. It's a bit hot here in Denver, but other than that, doing well. Ooh, yes. We've been dealing with a bit of a scorcher of late here in Madison as well. I'll say our our morning was brisk, which is my favorite, somewhere around 59 degrees, but I think we're going to touch 90 and get up into the 80% humidity today. So Probably probably an indoor day this afternoon, but always great to see you. I'm glad we were able to find a time for this. And I oriented the listeners a bit to your background with the biography, but I always think starting these episodes off, a good place to start is just for you to tell your story and how you kind of ended up at this stage in sleep and circadian research. Sure. So I, early on in high school, decided I wanted to work with kids with cancer because I had worked at a summer camp for kids with cancer. And so started my path towards being a pediatric psychologist with the goal of working in oncology. But in grad school, my mentor did diabetes. So I did diabetes and my dissertation looked at the benefits of overnight summer camps as respite care for mothers and looked at different aspects of respite care that it provided during the day and during the night. When I went on internship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, I was going to finally do oncology, but I needed to do a rotation with infants and toddlers because I didn't have much experience. And Jody Mandel provided me with that great opportunity into the world of sleep. And I immediately fell in love with the world of sleep because I'm a behaviorist. And so my patients quickly got better and they thanked me for it, as opposed to some of my other rotations, like in chronic pain, where, you know, it's much longer of a process. And I really enjoyed the multidisciplinary 
approach to sleep. So that was what I had always envisioned within oncology, which is that every family should see a doctor, a nurse, a psychologist all at the same time. And that wasn't the case in our oncology program, but that was how we approached seeing patients in the sleep clinic. And so it just spoke to me and I really fell in love with it. And so I needed to put together a research fellowship. And I looked at the data again for my dissertation where I found the most stressful part of maternal caregiving was during the night, even more stressful than hospitalizations or medical procedures. And so I took that stressful caregiving during the night and combined that with my newfound love of sleep and built a program of research looking at sleep in kids with chronic illness and their parents. So merging my goals with my new field and and the rest just sort of went on from there. Very cool. And clearly we're going to be talking about pediatrics to some degree today in a bit of a different manner, if you will. But I've I really appreciated hearing that story and and I personally, I think, really enjoyed your participation in the training symposia series this year. I I heard kind of overlap there between the story you shared at that time and currently. And it's it's just always great to hear these stories and how we kind of serendipitously end up in these fields, but find a very strong vocational passion that often aligns with our values and our interests. And I too agree in my training here as a clinician, still a trainee, not licensed, but I really enjoy the sleep side more so than sometimes when I'm doing other mental health work, things like that, just because of the tangible benefits that you can really see in a more rapid time. So I share that as well. And you've been very busy on the frontier of sleep and circadian research space for, for some time now. But, you know, what do you do in your spare time? I enjoy spending time with my son. He and I just got back from visiting the ballparks in Northern California. Last summer, we did the three ballparks in Southern California. And hopefully now that we're post-COVID, we can start doing some international traveling again. So I enjoy being with him. And I'm a musician. I play the flute and piccolo in a community orchestra. And I really love that I'm going to be able to do that again now that we're returning back to normal world. And then I'm sort of a bit of a homebody and I love baking and I love doing needlework and reading and just hobbies like that. Very cool. And I too have done the ballpark tour up the West Coast. And my father and I are actually in the works of kind of devising a more elaborate ballpark tour when I couple of years from now when I finish clinical internship and we celebrate kind of the end of this whole program. Are you proficient in take me out to the ball game on the flute or piccolo? Yes, I can do that. I actually, funny fact, played the Star Spangled Banner on my flute at my high school graduation. So there you go. Wow. Well, maybe we need to kick off the next year's trainee symposia series or something like that with a rendition by Lisa Meltzer. We'll just plug that here for now. And you know, if you weren't a sleeper circadian researcher, what career would you have fallen into or, or what would you have chosen? That's a great question because I, like I said, early on knew I wanted to work with kids. And so I always thought maybe going down that kid path, but we all have that point in graduate school where we think, well, if we drop out, what would we really do? And I remember my intern classmates and I used to discuss this a lot. And I would like to own, not very profitable in this day and age, but a small used bookstore, cafe, bakery place. And preferably someplace really fun and relaxing, like in Breckenridge, Colorado, or in Hawaii, or, you know, something like that. 
oh, I want, I want you to open that. And s- somewhere here in my home, my partner's ears perked up because she is a connoisseur of all things cute, artsy, creative coffee shops. And when we visited Denver, we ran into a few of those, especially in the Boulder area, a lot of, a lot of cool stuff out there. Honestly, not as many in Madison that I wish. So Madison, get it together. But I love that initiative and I love that lifestyle. And I hope that maybe in the future that's in the cards for you. But to transition from more of the personal side of things to kind of the main focus today of research, we're going to play a little keyword association. And at this point, we've done this a few times across episodes, but Lisa, just to kind of orient you, no main shock here. This is just word association with a scientific spin. So I'm going to throw you some keywords that may be relevant to the manuscripts we're going to discuss today. And I'll just have you respond with the first thing that comes to mind. And as per usual, listeners, although I do give guests a show outline, they're often blind to the keywords and these were developed this morning. So I'm just going to throw this at Lisa and see what comes out. All right, Lisa, are you ready? Sure. All right, here it is. The keyword association. We'll start with this. Child and adolescent sleep health. Important. Education. Critical. Also important. School start times. Too early. I would agree with that. Puberty. Painful. (laughs) I also agree with that. Seeing that firsthand in our home right now. Mine too. Uh, And last one here. Instructional approach. COVID outcome. I like it. And there you have it, the keyword association with Dr. Lisa Meltzer. And um, now, listeners, as I mentioned in the introduction, today's episode focuses specifically on two different but related investigations. And these were published by Dr. Meltzer and colleagues in the journal Sleep, I believe both in 2021. One article was published in, in April 2021, and that's entitled Changing School Start Times, Impact on Sleep in Primary and Secondary School Students with the second article published in August of 2021 entitled COVID-19 Instructional Approaches, In-Person Online Hybrid, School Start Times, and Sleep in Over 5,000 U.S. Adolescents. So to the listeners out there, please, please, please run on over to the Journal Sleep's webpage and go find these awesome articles. But since we are focusing on two different articles today, as we start with our kind of 10,000-foot view of these investigations to really get the the wheels churning and give everyone kind of a foundation to for a deeper discussion. We'll kind of tease these apart separately, and then we'll have kind of a joint discussion at the end. So Dr. Meltzer, why don't we start off by focusing on changing school start times? We'll go chronologically in order here. So the changing school start times impact on sleep in primary and secondary school students, and then we'll transition to the second article of focus. So related to this article, I think if I asked you what fueled you to perform this research, I think we would we would maybe know this at this point. So let's think about this particular investigation. What sort of gaps were you trying to fill in kind of the school start time literature? Um, all of them beyond adolescent sleep. <laughs> so this was my local school district that my son attends and is actually the school district I graduated from. And when I caught word that they were looking at changing school start times, I approached the superintendent and said, how can I help? I've been doing research on this. I'm very passionate about it. He's the one that made this happen. Dr. Siegfried was phenomenal and he's the one that made this happen. But I did present to the Board of Education and I met with him and I said, look, if you want to be the best school district in the country, which every superintendent wants, you have to study this. You can't just change it. We need more information to help support the movement. 
And so here are all the things that you need to do. You need to do surveys of students and they have to be done at school so that you have a very high response rate. You need to do surveys of teachers and parents. You need to do, look at all of the test data and attendance data. You need to get parent permission so that you can link survey data year over year. You need to do focus groups to capture information that's beyond surveys. And I presented him with all that and he said, that sounds great. You should do it. And there I was. So be careful what you ask for. Um, but we really wanted to do a 360 degree examination of the impact of changing start times, again, beyond adolescent sleep, looking at elementary school and all of these other factors. And we did not have a lot of time to put it together because this is in January of 2017. The board voted in mid-March 2017, and we had to launch our surveys three weeks later. And the start times then changed back fall. So it was a very tight timeline. But again, we wanted to look from a socioecological perspective all of the different areas that are impacted by this policy change. Fantastic. And kudos to you and your team for being able to put that all together in such a small window of time. These are the things behind the scenes that are often not disseminated or seen by other people outside of the scientific community. The amount of rushing, whether it's polishing up grants or whatever it may be. So great job there. And major respect for being able to convince the superintendent that this is a not just necessary, but critical initiative. And I think this study speaks for itself and kind of the meritorious characteristics it carries as you're able to track individuals longitudinally, albeit, you know, anonymous responses, but you do have kind of a longitudinal design here. And before I steal the microphone on that front, how did you, when, when trying to best kind of piece this together, you know, thinking about not burdening students too much with collecting data, those types of things, and trying to leverage the most accurate measurements for the outcomes you're interested in. Obviously, these are all trade-offs, but what sort of methodology did you land on to kind of best capture the effects of delaying school start times? So we focused primarily on surveys and self-report surveys of students grades three and up, because by the age of eight years, most kids are able to report on them themselves but then also parents of kids K through 12. And it was a very fine line between getting all the questions we wanted to ask and not being, as you said, overburdensome. So we used validated measures. We used, in some cases, just a couple of items from different promise scales, but items that we know have been validated and, and well used. And it really helped. The superintendent was very science and data focused. And so it was mandated by him that teachers had to set aside class time to make this happen. And so, you know, it was very fortunate to have that leadership behind me to support the research. But it was a great thing to be able to get not only the anonymous longitudinal data, but also to have parent permission in about 10% of our sample to physically link data year over year between students. And so, again, it, it was just having strong leadership that really allowed us to implement this. But beyond those surveys, we wanted to do the focus groups the following year, which we did with high school students, teachers, and parents to get that qualitative aspect, sort of the things that you can't capture or measure by individual survey questions. Very cool. And I think if I remember correctly, you had three focal time points kind of prior to the change with Cherry Creek. I believe kind of your initial follow-up, the post-change, was that perhaps a year later, I think? And then there was a secondary follow-up, which I really appreciate because I think this is 
the key element here in many ways is the durability of the effects. And so like I think a year later after that, you were able to capture a secondary time point as well after the change. And ultimately over that kind of two-year window, I think you get a good look at the immediate effects and the potential durability of these effects in relation to changing the start times around. And I also loved that you were able to look at kind of the age range you did and it made so much sense. I, I wasn't really aware of this before kind of diving into preparation for this interview, but the notion of it made a lot of sense in my mind that delaying school start times for middle schoolers and high schoolers makes sense based on what we know with kind of the endogenous changes, things like that. But there is a trade-off there to have the whole machine run optimally, which is to actually push the younger kids start times earlier. And I, I hadn't really seen as much in the literature kind of evaluate all these things simultaneously. So I just want to applaud you again for kind of thinking about this comprehensively and, and providing these details, because that, that's a key element here is if we shift one thing one way, there's going to be some sort of reciprocal action, and that may negatively influence a different set of individuals. And by your design, you're able to look at everything. And I think you were focusing on kind of sleep timing, the bedtime and the wake time of the individuals, duration of sleep, kind of the, I guess, propensity for oversleeping on the weekend, which could be a response from being fully underslept or chronically underslept during the week. And then you kind of have your homeostatic response on the end. And then also what I thought was also very interesting was adding in additional inquiries about sleep quality and daytime sleepiness, which aren't always assessed, sometimes are, but I think that looks at it more comprehensively. So great job there. And I think for the sake of time, we'll bypass maybe the more kind of nuance of the analyses. But generally speaking, what did you find in the results? So I'm going to get back to the results. I just want to follow up real quick with a couple of things you said. The longitudinal nature of the study was something that was really important because change is hard and nobody likes change. And the first year after the change, everybody still remembers that there was a change and aren't fully into it yet. But by the second year, it sort of become rhythm. And so that, that was really key was to be able to look at that second year to see not only the maintenance of changes, but to see how people settle in and adapt because they do over time once this just becomes, you know, what it is. Now nobody remembers what life was like before the change because it's so many years ago, also pre-COVID. So that was really important as well as that, like, as you said, the elementary school inclusion, because there's very little done in that flip where elementary school students have to start earlier is the most common solution when you have these busing systems, but elementary school students do need sleep and they need a lot of it. And so ensuring that we're not having unintended consequences by helping our adolescents was one of the main focuses of this study. So what we found was not terribly surprising. Middle school students on average slept about an extra 30 minutes a day. High school students slept about an extra 45 minutes per day. And elementary school students who went to bed about 10 minutes earlier but woke up about 20 minutes earlier ended up losing about 10 minutes of sleep per day. That said, we also looked at daytime functioning outcomes and found no negative impact on elementary school students. And so I think that's something really important to emphasize is that starting at 8 a.m. as opposed to 9 a.m., these students were still able to obtain what we would consider sufficient sleep duration. What we also saw in the middle and high school groups was significant increases in the percent of students obtaining sufficient sleep duration. So more than doubled the number of high school students um, at the same time that the national average of high school students obtaining sufficient sleep duration went down. And so, you know, Cherry Creek got over 60% of students, whereas the Youth Risk Behavior Survey went down to 27% of students. So 
just in one year, this policy change made a major impact on student sleep duration. And I think that is, you know, such a striking finding. Wholeheartedly agree. And when I read it the first time, I was just taken aback by the magnitude of effects for the middle scores and the high scores. That was just remarkable. And the increase in the proportion achieving sufficient sleep duration speaks for itself. And that's that's just an outstanding to address this major health crisis we have going on for children and adolescents. And we also kind of, I think, skirted over a key element of this paper as well. Given the characteristics of the sample, which was relatively diverse, you were able to kind of look more at individual characteristics, kind of racial and ethnic differences. And then also um, something that I've used in the past in one of my manuscripts too, the free or reduced lunch status as a proxy into kind of SES. And you were looking at kind of interactions between kind of individual characteristics, these features across the years to see if perhaps the changes affected groups differently, disproportionately in some regard. And then you also took a look at whether or not there were differences in sleep health outcomes in general between kind of these characteristics. What did you find on that front? So what we found was that the changes in patterns, which were bedtimes remained relatively the same but wake times were what significantly changed. Those patterns were the same across groups, across racial groups and across socioeconomic groups. There are groups who get less sleep pre-change. They were the same groups who got less sleep post-change. So we didn't necessarily change within group. We just looked at the patterns. And what you can see, again, wake time for all students is nearly identical, regardless of race or socioeconomic status where you see the differences are in bedtimes. Really the most significant notable difference when you're talking socioeconomic status was in elementary school students, where we saw later bedtimes, which led to shorter sleep. You also saw those same later bedtimes on weekends, but on weekends, what you saw was later wake times. And so on weekends, there was no difference in sleep duration in elementary school students. And so that was the the most significant difference. And there's a number of factors that can contribute to these differences in bedtimes. They could be cultural, they could be family-based, they can be parent work schedules. So there's a number of reasons why bedtimes can differ. But sleep health education is a huge part of what needs to happen when policies change. And we did have some of that education and we had handouts and they were translated across languages. But I do, in hindsight, of course, you always think we could have done more that we could have done more. So. Well, it's fascinating when you are there saying we could have done more in my brain, I'm simultaneously thinking you did quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> and I, 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 I think, yes, we can always beat ourselves up. We know our studies are the best, right? And we always find uh, areas that we could have enhanced or improved. But from my perspective, you crushed it. You knocked it out of the park to return to our ballpark theme from earlier. And I think that's a good place to land this kind of initial orientation to the first article. So thank you for that overview. Now let's spend some time kind of introducing the listeners to our second manuscript of focus here, which is related, certainly. This one published again in August of 2021, entitled COVID-19 Instructional Approaches in Person, Online Hybrid, School Start Times and Sleep in Over 5,000 U.S. Adolescents. So similar to before, Lisa, could you kind of give the listeners just a, a lens into What fueled you to perform this research? This was definitely a team science project. Mary Karskadden came to me in the spring of 2020 and said, we have an opportunity with a naturalistic experiment here to look at start times and sleep 
and I think you should lead it. <laughs> so when Mary comes to you with a request like that, you say yes. And we assembled a phenomenal team of researchers across the country, and we met regularly to design a study that would be as representative as possible with the limitations of recruitment through social media. So that is what the study did. We recruited through Facebook and Instagram adolescents in the fall of 2020, October and November. And so this was a period of time where we had students who had returned to school, students who were doing hybrid learning, students who had online synchronous learning, meaning they had a scheduled time they had to be on their computers, and students who had free asynchronous learning so they could learn whenever they wanted. And so they filled out surveys. And again, we had from all 50 states, territories, as close a representative. Of course, again, you always say we could have been more racially representative. We tried really hard. Social media is not the best way to do that. But a representative sample of, in this case, over 5,000 students who provided information on what type of schooling they had each day of the week. Because again, many students had different schools. They could be in-person one day, synchronous another, asynchronous a third. And for each type of schooling, then we asked what time they went to bed and what time they woke up to try and proxy sort of their sleep duration and their sleep-wake schedules. And so this allowed us to look at differences with the instructional approaches, sleep, and then school start times altogether. Outstanding. And I will say, I, I looked at the author list and it's just a superstar team. And, and I love when science is executed in this fashion because it does lead to great science. And, you know, this was the article that initially attracted me, Right. To because it was more recent, I think, than the the other one. Not that the other one isn't as meritorious, but it also hit home as I watched the eleven year old at that time, the ten year old in our home navigate these differential approaches across COVID, and it got my brain thinking about it too. You know, with kids rolling out of bed, hopping on the computer versus getting up at six a.m. to be at the bus stop at seven a.m. versus whatever those other hoops and hurdles are, and naturally, this was a variable. That is very, very relevant to the discussion of school start times and what we do with the educational system to not only just improve sleep health of children and adolescents, but just overall well-being. So I'm glad that like this was addressed in some capacity. And I think this is kind of a, an initial foundational investigation in many ways. Thank you, COVID, as much as you've thrown many wrenches into our life and many unfortunate things. The naturalistic opportunity to observe this was certainly a benefit. So thank you for leveraging an awful time in our lives to produce good science. That is what we do sometimes as scientists. And I will say, I thought you as a team did, a, again, an admirable job. We can't be perfect, but you know, over-marketing to certain areas to try and improve the diversity across the sample, that's necessary, right? Because in some ways, too, making it internet-based is an exclusionary criteria for some of the more lower SES individuals. But I felt like, you know, the way the methods were described, you were aware of that and you tried your best. And that's what we can really do sometimes. So we're focusing on instructional approaches, whether, you know, the traditional kind of in-person school. I even had to educate myself a year or two ago about all the different types of approaches that are going on. Kind of, you have the online synchronous where more or less it kind of mimics a traditional school day from a timing perspective, maybe a little bit later, but you're, you're fully online and you're engaged throughout with a teacher, you're learning synchronously with a teacher in a classroom versus kind of online, but asynchronous where the material is available, but the student can access it at their own desires and preferences. Is that, is that kind of a good orientation, those three different approaches? Yeah, we thought of them in terms of restrictiveness. So 
in-person is the most restrictive in that not only do you have a start time, but you have to get up, as you said, get to the bus stop, get ready, all of that. Whereas synchronous, we had students who said to us, you know, literally my alarm goes off, I sit up and I'm in class, but they still had to get up to an alarm to be in class. And then, as you said, the asynchronous, which is just sort of ad lib. And we could just, you know, see already the differences, the pros and cons to each approach in some ways or another on on various outcomes, whether that be sleep health or cognitive attentiveness in the early stages of class, maybe due to influence of residual sleep inertia, who knows, right? So there's a lot of different factors that are going to need to be teased apart as we get better understanding of this. But I think it's important to at least take the top off and start exploring these. And so what were you focusing on in particular when thinking about the the outcomes you were interested in? So this paper focused solely on sleep and looking at sleep and start times with these instructional approaches. We did collect data that are in forthcoming papers, also looking at mood as well as academic engagement. So I'll come back to those because those aren't in this paper, but are related. And so in this paper, looking at just starting with sleep, it's sort of what you would expect. Students who had in-person learning, both at the middle school and high school level, went to bed earlier, woke up a lot earlier, and got the least amount of sleep. Synchronous learners went to bed slightly later, woke up somewhere, you know, also a little bit later, about an hour later. So they ended up getting about an hour more sleep. Whereas the asynchronous learners went to bed the latest, slept in and averaged nine and a quarter hours of sleep, which we know from, again, Mary Carsiadden's early work is the biological need of adolescence. And so when allowed to sleep on a free schedule, the asynchronous learners were getting sufficient sleep duration. So from a sleep standpoint, Clearly, not having the restriction of early start times was really important in terms of increasing sleep duration. One of the second ways that we looked at it, though, is we looked at, you know, the type of learning, synchronous versus in-person, and then your start time. And so even within a window of start time, say between 7.30 and 8 o'clock a.m., what we found is that students who were online or synchronous learners were still waking up almost an hour later and getting an hour more sleep simply by not having to get up, get ready, and get the transportation to school. So really, it's more than just the start times, but all these other factors that you have to consider. And many students do have to travel quite a distance to get to school with the transportation. And so that plays into it as well. So from a sleep perspective, clearly we saw you know, significant benefits in terms of the percent of students obtaining sufficient sleep duration with the in-person learners matching national averages Synchronous learners improvement and asynchronous, of course, 81% of high school students who are asynchronous learners were getting sufficient sleep duration, right? So really quite striking. That all said, our subsequent papers are looking at, again, the mental health and the academic health of students. And what we found in both of those papers is that in-person learning is critical. I mean, it is critical for students to be with other students, to be engaged, to be physically present. And it's so important for mental health and academic engagement. That said, even within those papers, if you look at mental health and academic engagement by start times, the students who had the later start times had the best mental health and academic outcomes. So the bottom line is our students need to be in school, but they need to be in school with start times that allow them to get sufficient sleep duration, which is what ties it back to the previous paper and why I thought these two papers really should be presented together. I love it. And, you know, I I appreciated you steering me that to that kind of organization, as I do think it creates the most 
useful episode here. And it really is the intersection of these two findings that helps start to shed a picture on what education I don't want to use a word I don't often use. I tell tell persons I work with, my friends, my families to not use should, but what education should be in some ways from a structure perspective. We start to see a clear picture here. And so I, I just, again, applaud you for kind of thinking about this critically and what factors go in consideration here. And yeah, it was just startling to see that kind of the how much structure almost in a linear fashion, I know it wasn't kind of analyzed in that way, but almost in a linear fashion, you saw like just steps here or there where you would start an in-person and it'd be, you know, in-person to online synchronous is like a 40 minute change in sleep opportunity. And then you take the next step to asynchronous and it was, you know, another, I don't know, another hour addition, right? And it just felt like a very nice progression linearly. And as you pointed out with Mary's work too, we're just, I think, allowing the individuals to operate in a schedule that is more aligned with their internal biology rather than putting constraints on what their actual biology is. And that was very saliently seen here. And I think you are also looking at kind of just like the variability in sleep habits and sleep outcomes relative to kind of differential approaches that were utilized. And we'll use the word hybrid here, which I, I think captures a blend between a student being in person for some days and then online other days. I know that in our household, my partner's daughter, she would go to school for two days. She was kind of in a cohort wave at times. And then there would kind of be like a day off completely, like Wednesday would often be a no school day. And then her cohort would then switch with the other cohort and she would be online for that well, the other cohort would be in person. Is that is that kind of a hybrid approach? It is. We we looked at the data based on these different hybrid approaches, and we came up with over seventy different hybrid approaches. Like you're talking about, two days in person, two days synchronous, one day asynchronous, one one one, whatever it was. And so we we pared those down into either at least one day in person being the most restrictive, versus online only, but at least one day synchronous. So again, restrictive, but not as restrictive. And then when you look at the night-to-night variability in these hybrid groups, it is very significant and and is problematic, right? And especially with the in-person group, when you have those early start times, it creates even more variability. And so kids weren't maintaining that consistent bedtime and wake time that, you know, we strongly recommend, which we get because again, they could sleep in, they didn't have to wake up. And when you don't have to wake up, then you tend to stay up a little bit later, not as late, but a little bit later. And so that night-to-night variability really shown through on kids who had the hybrid schedules. Yeah, and I think we'll probably circle back to that kind of later on in our, our kind of deeper dive into the weeds of, of kind of an educational system and, you know, making sense of this all. And and I'll throw around the word optimal. You know, I, I'm starting to learn in life, nothing is fully optimal ever, right? But to further enhance the health and wellness of students, you know, making sense of this all and bringing it all together. I have some creative thoughts. Some of them are wonky, but I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that later. And I think also just kind of with the characteristics that emerged in the sample, you were able to do some exploratory analyses that looked at other demographic variables. And I think if I remember correctly, nothing necessarily emerged from that. No, again, very similar to our, the previous paper we discussed, it very similar that these are not necessarily socio-demographically tied variables, that this is just adolescence and school start time. 
there are cultural factors, there are family factors and neighborhood factors that certainly do affect sleep, but we did not see any of those in these cases having a major impact on our outcomes. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see, I imagine you're you're analyzing that now, they're already available or they're being published soon, but kind of those relationships on the other parameters that you measured but are not including this manuscript as, you know, I, I can only think just with my own psychology brain, like the necessity of having your camera on in the home and perhaps your home environment's not the most attractive or one you're very proud of, or it's chaotic or whatever it may be, that in itself is going to have some impact on mood, things like that. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, looking forward to seeing what emerges there. And I, I do think, Lisa, if you're comfortable, I feel like we've we've done a nice job here. Thank you so much for spearheading that orientation to those two papers. And if you're ready, we could we could dive a little bit deeper into the weeds. And you know, we already talked about kind of this this big topic. And at this point in in our research, I think this is central to kind of all of our relationships is understanding how individual differences kind of moderate the effects in some degrees. And you've, you've talked about this already that, and so I don't know that we have to spend a ton of time on it as far as what kind of contributes to some of the disparities that we would see across students. But as far as maybe more, you know, we've talked about cultural differences. We've talked about whether it just be commuting time, you know, access to parental transportation is kind of just one. You know, I, I think about that in our home is it takes, I think, about 15 minutes for us to drive her to school relative if she takes the bus, that's an hour. And so that just that difference alone can put constraints on the amount of time somebody has the ability to sleep, just kind of differences in understanding of the import of sleep and those knowledge. And maybe that this is where we tie in is what do you think is the best kind of approach we have to kind of resolving some of these sleep health differences we're seeing kind of in, in children and adolescents? Wow, that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> there, I mean, there's so many factors that go into pediatric sleep health, right? And so when you're talking again about the sleep environment and the family and the neighborhood and not to mention individual differences and individual variability and, you know, the, those types of things as well, I think from our work, what we really take away is, like you said, the the transportation is a very big factor. And, you know, early research, uh, Kyle Wallstrom's work really looked at the importance of later start times as an equity issue. Because if you have parents who leave very early because they're working and you sleep in and miss the school bus, you don't go to school that day. And if you have a later start time, you're more likely to wake up and get on that school bus and get to school. And so finding in her work in Minneapolis that this really did benefit students of color and students from low-income families where parents are more likely to be at work in the morning. And so I think that's an important factor as well, that access to transportation, like you said, in your family, you have that ability to allow your, you know, the 11-year-old in your home to sleep later in the morning by, by driving her as opposed to riding the bus. You know, in the Cherry Creek District, the schools previously started at 7, 10 a.m. And the first bus would pick students up at 5.55 a.m. And so because of that hour-long commute to get to school. I think that transportation is, is a big issue. And I think that is something that districts struggle with the most, but certainly has a big impact with the start times and with the sleep. But there's so many factors that go into sleep. And I think that's where, you know, a lot more research is needed to understand how each of these individual socioecological factors can impact pediatric sleep. Definitely a lot, a lot of work to be done there. And the transportation one, I, I just, in my brain, is, is such a hard puzzle 
to figure out. And just with the sprawl of individuals connected to a singular district and trying to find a way, somebody seemingly is going to be, in my eyes, disadvantaged to some degree, just because you have to have a bus route, right? Mm -hmm. And so somebody's going to be picked up first which means that they're going to spend longer time on the bus than somebody else. And that in itself is going to put, put a constraint on their sleep. But maybe there's a way to get creative with that where if your commute time is longer than maybe you can start later. I don't know. These are kind of the thoughts that as we get more flexible in some ways, we might be able to reduce the influence of this on, on these outcomes. But I've, I'm curious, Lisa, you know, these papers are really important. But I think they're really showcasing themes in many ways that have already been kind of established to some degree, right? This is not a new discussion. In fact, it's been going on for, I think, principally about a decade at this point. I think there was that paper or the initiative in 2014. I'll, I'll butcher, but some high- American dandic- Academy of Pediatrics. Yes. Thank you. That's why you're here. The expert, you know, driving attention to this notion that we have a sleep health crisis emerging in pediatrics and school plays a key role in this. And research then started to unfold that further substantiated that. And yet, Lisa, I'm really surprised. I haven't seen a rush from school districts to adopt this. So what do you think exists despite the empirical evidence steering school districts to make this change? What sort of factors or barriers are inhibiting further integration of these changes? So as you said, this research has actually been going on for almost 25 years. Kyla Wallstrom started in the late 90s with the Minneapolis and Edina school districts looking at it. And the 2014 position paper really helped to propel more schools to change. The Start School Later movement and the organization has really helped The most notable change is the California state bill that has gone into effect July 1st, which mandates across the state middle schools cannot start earlier than 8 a.m. and high schools cannot start earlier than 8.30. And so we're all very curious to see how that goes and hoping that that will perpetuate further movements. But as you said, you know, there's two types of research. There's the aha research and there's the no-da research, right? And this is clearly no-da research. Like, we actually had a very hard time getting our findings published because people kept saying this isn't new. We already know this, right? The problem is, is we need more science to convince more people. But as scientists, we need to do a better job translating the science into policy. And the biggest barriers to making changes is that change is hard and nobody likes to make change. And all, almost all of the barriers that come up are grown-up problems, right? Like not student problems. Transportation is an issue that has to be solved, right? Parent work schedules is an issue that has to be solved. Extracurricular activities, you know, there's a lot of things that people come up with as barriers that, in fact, are not overly barriered once you actually implement it. But it takes a lot of community engagement to be successful. Communities need to buy into this. They need to understand why the changes are being made. They need to understand what is going to change and how they can adapt to it. So going back to Cherry Creek, again, Dr. Siegfried, the superintendent, engaged the communities, and we had a paper that described this. He met with lots of parents, with students, with teachers over and over and over again to hear what are their concerns. And based on those concerns, made adaptations to when the schools were going to start, made adaptations for middle school parents who said, I can't rely on my student to get on the bus if I'm at work. 
So they opened the school cafeterias at 8 a.m. for supervised breakfast. So students could be dropped off. Parents can get to work. Kids can get their breakfast and everybody's still getting the sleep that they need. And so by engaging the community, because every community is different, every district is different, understanding the needs of those communities and what the biggest fears are can help the districts work towards addressing those fears. The barriers are surmountable. Again, the Start School Later organization has information on their website about this. The Pennsylvania State Commission put out a paper or a joint report showing these are the barriers and here's ways and solutions that we can get around them. So there's information out there for districts that are interested, but the leadership has to buy in. The superintendents, the teachers, they have to recognize that this is valuable and that will then help to take those first steps and then the barriers can be overcome. I love it. And I'm just going to clip that audio. And when you run for public office, Dr. Meltzer, <laughs> we'll just use that as your platform because that was that was beautiful on so many levels. And for the listeners out there, I stumbled on this paper a while back and, and I actually found it very useful just to kind of educate myself. And this is by Julia Fitzpatrick and colleagues called Perceived Barriers and Facilitating Factors in Implementing Delayed School Start Times to Improve Adolescent Sleep Patterns. And that's in the Journal of School Health, published in 2020. And many of the things that Lisa just mentioned, they unearthed as well that, you know, I think as far as perceived barriers, it had to do with athletes missing more afternoon classes to attend to or travel to games, concern around tiered school bus transportation system. Again, this this really the elephant in the room of transportation, less after school time for athletic activities. Clearly, we have some prioritization of extracurriculars that there's some concern there. And then this one I did want to draw attention to because I think it was it was kind of useful in, in your study in some ways. So I think a 21.1% of responders to a survey in this study indicated that there was a major resistance among family members to change the schedule, as you alluded to, right? And what I really liked about what you described earlier was kind of the adaptation to change that can be kind of assessed by that longitudinal design where I could see like parents hand up here being slightly resistant at first, right, to changing these start times around being like, well, what does that do to my home, right? I'm a bit more phase advanced here. I want to go to bed at 9pm, right? But by delaying the start time, you know, the 11 year olds probably now going to stay up closer to 10. And I'm gonna have a harder time kind of aligning our bedtimes and, and wake times together. And so I myself, feel a bit of resistance to that. But I imagine over that kind of year of implementation and adaptation, those rigid beliefs by parents and things like that are lessened. And so I wonder if the data exists or in the future, whether we can see whether parent perceptions of kind of these barriers change over time. Is that something you're aware of at all? Yeah. So each of these factors, we have data for, so I can only speak to that. I know there's other data out there, but it's, again, that that change is very hard, as you said, and these are grown-up problems. And that resistance was something I felt quite strongly. My son was in elementary school at the time, going from nine to eight, and I was not a popular parent at the bus stop, I will tell you, because none of these parents wanted to get up an hour earlier. And it was a big change and it was hard. But I think that's the short-sightedness of not recognizing once your kids get to middle school, the benefits of them starting later, and especially once they get to high school. So, you know, it, it over time, it, it, it is some of that understanding. But, you know, the athletes missing afternoon classes, you know, there's solutions around this in terms of Cherry Creek has six high schools. So they were able to, during the school week, only compete against other Cherry Creek high schools. So they didn't have to 
leave early and tried to save all of the competitions against other districts for days where they wouldn't have to leave early. But the superintendent was very adamant, like, look, we're talking about education here. And it is a small percent of students who are going to have to leave classes early, a very small percent when you consider the percent of students who are now going to get extra sleep, right? So if you're talking 10% of students might have to leave classes early and 100% of students are going to get more sleep and we're about education and not about athletics, let's put this in perspective. So I think that was something to consider. Of course, the after school time for athletic activities did impact the middle school students most notably because they got out the latest. And so for some fields, they would lose light. There were track meets, soccer matches that sometimes might end slightly earlier than they wanted because they would lose light. And that is a real factor. But again, what the coaches would talk about is having more concentrated practices, that their students were more alert, they were more awake, they were able to get more done in a shorter period of time. And so you have to sort of weigh that cost benefit. Your students are sleeping more, so they're better able to participate. So you can get done more stuff in a shorter period of time. And they didn't see it as a problem. And in fact, the next year, Cherry Creek won even more, you know, athletic competitions. They're, you know, whether or not it had anything to do with this, we can't say. But we like to assume it's all because of sleep, which I know it's not. But the family members, the resistance to change is really hard. And Again, there are parents whose work schedules are affected by it. What we did see, especially in elementary school, was that before school care became almost non-existent, the programs almost ceased to exist. The after-school care programs, now that students were getting out at 245, almost doubled in the number of students who had to stay. But they created tiered pricing so that some students, you know, if you got picked up at 430, it cost less than if you got picked up at 6. But the teachers talked about the benefits of not having students drag in at 9 a.m., having already played for two hours, right? Like they come to school ready to learn and then they do all their playing after school. So it, again, it is a time issue of learning what is going to happen. Fear holds back a lot of change. And I think that in these fears have not been sort of played out, not only in Cherry Creek, but in other districts as well. So I think it's, again, education and really understanding and empathizing with people Yes, this is going to be hard, but we can make this work. Love it. And, you know, the sleep and athletic performance space is actually an area of research I'm now kind of drifting into. And I'm currently writing a review related to that in professional sports. And there does seem to be some uh, better attention and information these days about how improving sleep health in athletes is going to lead to better training, lower risk for injury, lower risk for illness, which will allow you to be actually at the practice field or at the competition. And so it's not always about more practice, as you're pointing out, but more effective practice, which can come from improving sleep health. So at times it's about educating the coaches and the organizations, if we're kind of expanding more to professional realms or things like that, or even colleges, about the downstream benefits here, that what you're going to get is actually a benefit rather than a burden and something you're going to have to navigate. And I think once that theme is solidified in their brain, it becomes a no-brainer. I want to have my athletes there and I want to have them performing at their peak levels if possible. And so I too agree that all of Cherry Creek's downstream success was due to your initiative and the improvement in sleep health and no other factors contributed there at all. Can I? But, just, uh, yeah, go for it. Just a couple things. So just in terms of activities and employment, because those are big concerns, like students who need to work after school still need to work after school. And we did track that and we did look at that. 
And there was a very small decrease in um, participation in activities, about a three to four percent decrease per year. But again, when you think about that participation rate decrease, when you're talking about 20,000 students in high schools and middle schools, right, as opposed to the amount of students who are now getting more sleep, again, it's a trade off. And in terms of employment, employment slightly decreased in the very first year after change. But in the second year after change, it actually went up by 5%. And so it did not interfere with students' ability to be employed either before or after school. And so I think that that I know is a big fear, especially in districts where students truthfully do have to work, that we didn't see that, that students were still able to have employment after school. And I think that's important. And then with the downstream effects that you're talking about, not only in terms of athletic performance, but parents' sleep improved for middle schools and high schoolers. They got more sleep. Teacher sleep improved. Both teachers and parents with middle school and high school students reported feeling less sleepy and feeling more alert. And so, again, those downstream benefits and community benefits, fewer drowsy driving crashes, right? We saw all of that. And these are different papers, but we saw all of that in the same way that you would expect, but it just adds more I mean, the parent data and the teacher data and the elementary school data were new. Like this is stuff that hadn't been shown before and I think is critical for communities to see and to understand. It's not just about teens, but that's where we start. And I think that all of this data together really supports the importance of healthy start times. Outstanding. And yeah, there's just so much downstream direct and indirect benefits from this. And just thinking about you know, selling parents and things like that and improving the sleep health of your child improves their mood, their emotional regulation, your ability to communicate them, which in turn may lead to less arguments in the evening time in the home environment, which in turn leads to less pre-sleep arousal, which in turn allows you to fall asleep better and your sleep health improve. And all those factors that may not be immediately salient for them, but aren't too difficult to digest just with a little bit of information. So I love that. And I love that the data is there. And you know, I, I would be remiss without asking this, Lisa, given your expertise and your wisdom on so many levels here and the understanding of the empirical data, not just your own and the robust kind of program you've built here, but others as well. If you were given full control, right, here's the keys to, to the schools. You can open it all whenever you want and you could have whatever modality of instruction possible or some sort of intersection of modalities. How would you design kind of elementary, middle, high school? I would have everybody start at 8.30. (laughs) Everybody at the same time, start 8.30, not before, giving students that opportunity to sleep across ages and still giving them the opportunity after school to do all the activities that they need to do. Um, I believe in in in-person school. I've always, as a child psychologist, believed in in in-person school. There is a small percent of students who really do benefit from online or homeschooling, but it is small. And I do think for uh, social development, emotional development, having multiple pairs of eyes on kids, it's important for them to be in school. And so I, I really do believe that. I think there are creative models for education around the world that, that are being tested related to start times. And some of those are simply out of pure necessity. So in South America, there are schools where they have too many students for the one building. So they do schools and shifts. So they have a morning start time and an afternoon start time. And they've worked to try and streamline students based on their chronotype preference, right? And so students who identify as morning or intermediate types will have the morning starts, whereas those who have evening preferences have the afternoon starts and really showing the benefits of, you know, flexible start times or varying start times. I don't ever see something like that happening per se in the U.S., but again, every district is different. And I do think there are students 
who really would benefit from not having a first period class. It's not all students, right? There's a small number, but I think there's other things that need to be considered when we talk about sleep and student health. And I think the over-programming of kids, which we saw a break from during the pandemic, but is ramping up again. And so students who have multiple activities and multiple athletics, and not to mention the homework load, which is something districts really need to carefully consider how much homework students are being asked to do, those are problematic. And those take up a lot of time. And do students really need to be on both the junior varsity and the varsity team, right? And three to four hours of homework every night, is that really necessary? And so I think some of those things need to be considered by educators and by parents that are really going to interfere with the mental health, physical health, and sleep health of students as well. So it's not all about start times, not all about sleep. And then, of course, you throw technology and social media in there on top of it. And so, you know, that that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> it is complex. And yeah. I, I put in our show outline here the word radical transformation, but I'm hearing more of like gradual tinkering. Would you say that's a, a more appropriate strategy for kind of addressing the issues we have in front of us? Well, I mean, any radical transformation would be phenomenal. But, you know, in our country, in this day and age, I think baby steps are great. Although if districts are making changes, I will throw out there, don't make a small change. Don't make it 15 minutes this year and 15 minutes the next year. Families hate that. If you're going to make a change, make the big change and stick to it. We've seen districts where it has not been successful, where they say, well, we're only going to start 15 minutes later this year. Families don't feel that different. But if you start 30 or 45 minutes later and just leave it there, then families know the difference. So I digress, but radical transformation would be phenomenal. I just, again, change is hard. And so I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I mean, my brain chews on this a lot of with the modern technology these days and somewhat the nature of school, some elements of it seemingly becoming a bit more obsolete than they were previously, I still align with you that there are such valuable aspects of in-person schooling that cannot be overlooked. The socialization, just the devoted space, right? I mean, like I see it myself when I actually go into my research lab versus when I work at home. Whether or not my productivity is different, just the way I think about myself and kind of navigate the world is different. And so I think having that devoted space where you're in a community of, of like-minded peers and things like that is invaluable on so many levels. But I think what's still missing in my brain, Lisa, is like, we're not actually giving them more hours in the day, right? There's still a, a major constraint that is the, the actual amount of school. And naturally, that invites in a lot of different conversations about, well, maybe there is some utility to some sort of hybrid or asynchronous approach. Granted, your literature indicates that that is not a recommended approach for sleep health, but is there a way we can get more creative where, say, like, there's maybe three days of in-person to start the week consecutively, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then there's like a flip to maybe asynchronous for Thursday, Friday, where again, yes, we're inviting in potential variability in the sleep schedule, but at least we're maybe blocking the asynchronous or localizing them closer to the weekend when that behavior would be more common? Do you see something like that ever coming online or is that too complicated? I think there are lots of different educational models. And again, I'm a psychologist, not an educator, but I think that some of them have been shown to be successful. So for example, here in Colorado, Colorado College is a block system school. You take one course for a term 
And it's you intensely study one subject for however many weeks it is, and then you move on to the next subject as opposed to carrying four courses at the same time, right? And for some students, that's a great learning approach. I think we've sort of regressed to the mean and our educational approach fits the most students. And one thing I learned about doing research in the educational system is it's really complicated. So again, this is one district that I did research in. It's 55,000 students. And you know, you're talking 44 elementary schools, 13 middle schools, six traditional high schools, and every school does it differently. And that's within just one district. And so there's a strong tradition of local autonomy within schools and school districts. And schools often do adapt to the learning needs of their students and their communities because they do differ. Right now, I'm working with the Denver Public Schools, which is a massive 80,000 plus student district that is incredibly diverse and very, you know, large Latino and low income and other diverse populations. And their needs are quite different than what we saw in Cherry Creek. And so I think if, if education is not as simple as let's radically do it one way because there is no one right way because there's no, every student is different, right? And so trying to pick what's going to work for the most students is I think where we've ended up. And so it's a very psychologist response to it, like it depends. But I do, again, now having been part of the education system through this research, I can tell you as researchers, it seems really simple to make these changes, but in practicality, it's really complex. Beautiful. And I, and I just, I mean, it's enriching to hear the recognition of nuance and the variation just within a district, right? And that we need to be mindful of that and think about the specific local community surrounding a specific school and what their needs are, as you've kind of brought up multiple times, and that there is not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach of how we make use of the empirical data across all the various schools that could be impacted by it. But these need to be at the forefront of consideration and just implemented and integrated in the best way possible to benefit the most students possible. And I think that's that's a really, really good way, or I guess the optimal way, to circle back to a word we used earlier, to kind of make use of all of this. And um, I want to be mindful of your time. And I really appreciate you you budging all this time for these critically important papers at a time when we're going to release this that's going to align, almost like we did that strategically, with the start of schools for many. So thank you for, for taking time to do that. Before you know, we close things down, before I let you go in general, I just, you know, where do you think the research should go from here to kind of resolve existing gaps, to show policymakers or districts that this these are necessary changes? What, what sort of things should researchers be thinking about? I think we still need more information on how early is too early, especially for elementary school students. You know, again, Cherry Creek moved to 8 a.m., but a lot of districts across the country are proposing a 7.30 or 7.35 start for elementary school students. And we have no data on whether or not that's too early. I would say personally, just again, from my end of one child, I can tell you that'd be too early. But I, you know, it's a trade-off. Like, how do we ensure the sleep health of our middle and high school students when it might come at the cost of elementary school? And so we do need a lot more research in that area. I think it'd be useful to have, again, even though it's replication, no die research, but we need more information on outcomes beyond adolescent sleep. So much more of the academic stuff, you know, again, it's very complex with grades and test scores and that type of thing, because again, every school and district is different, but we need some more of that information. 
Mental health data is very difficult to collect, but is really important. But not all of these things are tied necessarily to just sleep or just to start times, especially in our post-pandemic world. So I think that's important. But thinking about the broader sort of trickle-down effects that we talked about, you know, the parents and the teachers and other community impacts, I think, are important to look at as well. Outstanding. A lot of work to be done. All those listeners, go go to your, your grant writing boards, go to your whiteboards, whatever it is, add these to your, your project to-do lists because we, we need to move the ball forward here. And it's, and it's our community that can do that. We can provide information to help others. One more. We clearly need more information on, again, Cherry Creek is a suburban school district. And while it's diverse, it is certainly not an urban district. And we, with all of what we know about sleep health disparities, especially you and I have talked about today, we clearly need more research and information on, on how these policy changes impact different groups, but just, just sleep health and disparities in general, we need a lot more research on as well. Beautiful. And perhaps, you know, there could be partnerships with commercial groups or whatever it may be that can provide us technology that might be able to help kind of better measure these variables. I, I know in much of this research relies upon self-report. And, you know, a lot of this is, I think, a concern that we didn't even bring up is that self-report sleep duration is often an overestimation, not always, but often. And so the scope of the problem may actually be worse than we actually know. So I do think if we can improve methodology in some ways, you know, get daily data over a longitudinal period that's convenient and not burdening students, as well as parents and teachers on that same front, that could be a nice a fruitful area to progress this field and gain better clarity on some of the issues. And um, just to close down today, Lisa, I just want to thank you so much for for finding time to discuss these investigations and to share your awesome wisdom and personality. I know I've been blessed in many opportunities to meet you previously and to attend lectures, whatever it may be, but others in the audience may not. So thank you so much for, for finding time for that. And for listeners out there, would you be open to sharing any sort of social media or things like that where they could reach you? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me in this conversation. I can be found on LinkedIn and our research study was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And so most of our papers to date have open access. And so those links are on my LinkedIn profile so people can find these different papers that I've been talking about there as well. Very cool. And last question, arguably the hardest question of them all, Dr. Meltzer, are you ready? Okay. If you were afforded unlimited funding, no constraints at all, to explore a singular sleep and or circadian research topic, then what would you investigate? That's a great question. I am very passionate about pediatric sleep health. And, you know, we recently took the RU sated model and adapted it for PEDS. So PEDS be sated. And we have so many unanswered questions because most research funding focuses on disease or on problem. And what we really need to this unlimited funding for is sleep health. And there's so many unanswered questions about what is normal that we can't just keep studying what is abnormal. So, for example, you know, what are the biological needs of prepubertal children? We, we know clearly the biological need of adolescents, but what's the biological need of a 10-year-old? We have recommended ranges, but what is that based on? That's not based on, you know, empirical experimental studies. We know a lot about the impact of short sleep duration, but we need to learn a lot more about long sleep duration in kids and what does that mean and how is that tied with mental and physical health. Of course, I'm a big family parent researcher, so I think sleep within the family and sleep health within the family. Clearly, we need more. The electronic usage is part of sleep health, right? Like we always think that it's bad, but 
you know, clinically, we find there's actually groups of kids where electronic usage improves sleep. And so we need more research looking at it. And Michael Gratazar has done research showing that, you know, electronics aren't as all evil as we often think they are. And then, of course, as I've already mentioned, sleep health disparities, clearly we need a mountain of money to be looking at this across populations, across ages. Those socioecological factors are just critical to understanding. So it's not one topic, but it falls under one umbrella. <laughs> it's a perfect answer for me. And, you know, if you ever are able to look more, I guess, discreetly at the relationships between long sleep duration and differential tracks throughout adolescence, I would love to collaborate in some capacities. That's something I'm really interested in and something that is is truly understudied at this point. So I, I appreciate where your head's at. And it's a fantastic time talking with you as always, Dr. Meltzer. Thank you so much again. Have a wonderful rest of your day and a better weekend. Thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burrows and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.